0: Welcome back to Stranger Stories Part three. Or should I say episode three? Have you guys been enjoying the series? It's an interesting one, eh? Hey? We're taking a look for those of you who might not know what the series is about, we are taking a look at some of the more unusual and unexpected and strange stories in Scripture. Now we know that the Bible is filled with strange stories. The Bible as a whole is a bit of a strange story. But there are some stories in there that are a little bit weirder than the others. But as strange as these stories may be, they do hold lessons for us, amen? There is truth for us today. And these stories at first glance may appear random, out of place, or confusing. But when we take a look at them and and look a little bit deeper, we see that we can learn more about God, about how he works, about his character, and we can even learn practical lessons for our lives today. Today's strange story is called The Wandering Assassin. Not wandering with an O as in, I wonder who I'm gonna kill today. (laughs) Wandering with an A as in someone who travels, who lives a nomadic lifestyle. I'm not gonna tell you exactly who we're talking about, but maybe this is a test of your Bible knowledge to try and guess who we're talking about, the wandering assassin. And this story comes from the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is filled with strange stories. It is a book that has some weird, violent, and disturbing stories, yet they do serve a purpose. The book of Judges talks about Israel's moral corruption and their descent into sin and disobedience of God. And it serves as a warning of the pain and destruction that follows when we turn away from God and his way. Throughout the book of Judges, we see this pattern that Israel finds themselves in. And you would think that after once or twice, they'd realize... Maybe we're doing something wrong, but no, they keep repeating the cycle and it just gets worse and worse. And the cycle is they enter into sin. So they turn away from God, they enter into sin. God punishes them by handing them over into oppression. They live in this suffering for a while and they realize, you know what, we we stuffed up. So they repent. God hears them, He delivers them. They live in peace for a while. And then they forget what they had just done and they go right back to the beginning. And they sin, they get punished and tend to oppression, they repent, they get delivered, they live in peace, and then they go back to sin. So we see this pattern throughout the book of Judges again and again. So as a whole, this book is filled with tragedy. But it is a good reminder of how broken we are as people. Because the Israelites fell into this pattern. Guess what? You and I are no different. Take a look at your life. And it might not be as intense as what the Israelites experienced. But we kind of repeat these patterns. We go into sin. We realize we made a mistake. We ask for repentance. God delivers us. We enjoy his presence until we kind of forget what we had just done and decide it's good, a good idea to sin again. And the cycle repeats. So what we read in Judges reminds us that we are in desperate need of grace and in need of a savior. And the story we're going to look at today is found in chapter four. And in this passage, we are in a time when God is about to deliver his people out of oppression. Now, in order for the strange story to make a little bit of sense initially, we need to have some backstory. So we're gonna start at the beginning. We're going to start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. When you read, you begin with A, B, C. With exegesis, you begin with verses 1, 2, 3. And all my Sound of Music fans are kind of laughing on the inside. The rest of you are like, what is up with that? So we're going to start with verses 1, to 3 of chapter 4. When Ehud was dead. Okay, great. That's a lovely start. Um, I have no idea what's happening. Who's Ehud? Now, remember, the book of Judges is about the judges. So Ehud was the judge that had been ruling in Israel before they became oppressed again. Okay, during this time, Israel did not have kings, yet they had judges. The judges ruled the tribes of Israel And they dealt with people's issues. They kind of served in a military leadership role. So chapter four starts by telling us that the judge Ehud is dead. And now the next few verses are going to tell us what happened to Israel after his death. Continues. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Sin. Again. They're now starting the cycle over. So the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, King of Canaan, who reigned in Hazel. Okay, so now we see their punishment. They're being oppressed by the king of Canaan. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harashith Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They repented. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So although verses 1 to 3 is just this short piece, we read it quickly, we need to understand that it is capturing 20 years of history. Ehud died, the Israelites sinned, they went into oppression. They've been suffering now for 20 years. So it's just a quick summary of where they're at at the moment. They've been suffering for 20 years, and now they're at a place they're turning back to God. They have repented, and the Lord is now getting ready to help them fight against their oppressors and regain their freedom. In verses four to five, we see that at this time, the judge is a prophetess called Deborah. So Ehud died, and the judge that took his place is Deborah. And she calls the people of Israel to get up and get ready to fight for their deliverance. Remember, she's not just a judge, she's a prophetess, which means that she is hearing from God and speaking to the people. So what she is saying is not coming from her, it's coming from God. So read in verses 6 to 9. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? With you take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun and again and against you I will deploy Sisera the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river of Kishon and I will deliver him into your hand now this is a promise of deliverance so she's telling Barak the Lord is telling you to go go fight and the Lord will deliver you guys And Barak says, if you go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Okay, so what exactly is happening here? Deborah calls on Barak, Tells him to form troops and head into battle against Sisera and his army of Canaanites. She's telling Barak that this is a fixed fight. The Canaanites have no chance. You're going to win. Israel will overcome. And his response to her, okay, but only if you go with me. Now, in our understanding, this seems a bit strange. This man who's been called to lead an army saying to a woman, I'll go only if you go with me. But understand the time. She was the judge. Culturally, it was probably expected for her to go fight with them. So it wasn't that strange of a request. But what makes it a bit of a, mm, Baraki you kind of stuffing up here, is it is an instruction from God. If it was culturally expected, she was going to go anyway. But she's telling him, the Lord is saying, go. And he's saying, only if you come with me. So she gives this command. It wasn't her will that they go fight the Canaanites. It would have been a different story if she's like, guys, I have an idea. Let's get our men together and let's go fight the Canaanite army. That would have been a different story, but it was God's will that she was speaking. And because of this cowardly response from Barak, although Israel would win the battle, although he would be a... A key factor in this that he was taking a big responsibility he was the one who was called to take the charge but because of this cowardly response and saying only if you come with me she tells him that the glory will not be his the glory will be given to a woman now understand that was extremely embarrassing for him at the time now let's see what happens next verse 10 to 16 And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Now understand these aren't two people he's calling. These are tribes of Israel. Remember, the tribes of Israel come from the sons of Jacob. So the tribes are named after the sons. So he's calling people from the tribes of Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali. And he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heba the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people... Sorry, I lost my place here. And all the people who, went, who were with him from Harashith, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, "'Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you?' So Barak went down from Mount Abel with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera. He defeated Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot.' But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hereshith Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So the Israelites won the battle, just as Deborah had prophesied. Now there's a few interesting things happening here. For starters, Barak, knowing that they were going to win, he needed a little nudge from Deborah. She had to say, up, Go. He needed her with him. She had to tell him when it was time to go. That's not a very strong and in command leader, is it? Someone to take charge of an army to sit there waiting for instruction. He was given an instruction, and then instead of taking action, he sat and waited for more instruction. Now, we're also introduced to a new character in verse 11. I don't know if you guys picked that up, but it's a bit random, just out of place, where we get this random piece of information about a guy named Heber, a Kenite, who is related to Moses' father-in-law. We're also told that he separated himself from his people and set up camp in a location which was near to where the battle was going to take place. Why do we need to know this? Why, are, why is that verse there? See, typically, that's the kind of information, that's the kind of verse that we gloss over because we want to get to the good stuff. Show me the fight. Show me the battle. Give me those details. But as random and out of place as this is, it has value. So keep that in mind, Heber the Kenite. So anyway, Sisera gets word that the. The Israelites are getting ready to have a battle with them, so he gets his army together, he gets his chariots. Now, keep in mind, 900 chariots of iron. That gives them an advantage. The Israelites are just there on foot. But the Canaanites have these chariots which they can just plow through. So they have an unfair advantage. Sisera gets his army ready, and, and I can kind of picture this in like one of those, those action packed films of like, you know, the medieval times, and we have like thousands of men standing on one side. And then on the other side, just on the mountain, there's another group of tens of thousands of men. And it's quiet, and they're just staring each other down. You can feel the tension rising. Something's about to happen. And then Deborah speaks and says, "Up, For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone before you? And then they charge. And Barak and his men charge towards carnage. Let's not sugarcoat it. It wasn't a pretty battle. And we read that the Lord gave them victory. Every man in Sisera's army died. There were no survivors, except it says that Sisera fled. Somehow, in this mess of battle, he managed to sneak off his chariot And run away, leaving his men to die in battle. He snuck away to save himself. That's a bit cowardly too, isn't it? Now here's the thing. Deborah prophesied that they would win the battle. She also prophesied that Barak would not have the glory of defeating Sisera. Instead, he would fall by the hand of a woman. So she prophesied two things. The first has already happened. That's 50%. I think we can kind of say we can believe what she prophesied. So now we we wonder, how is the second part going to be fulfilled if he escaped? Let's see. And here's where our strange story happens, verses 17 to 21. However... Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And he had, and when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, say, and, and says, is there any man here, you shall say no. Then Yael, Heba's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand And went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. How's that for a strange story? As Deborah prophesied, Sisera was taken down by a woman. But this isn't the way that we expected it to happen, right? As we're reading this story, we initially think, okay, that means Deborah's gonna be the one to kill Sisera. She's there with them in the battle. She's probably the only woman on the battlefield. She's probably gonna be the one to take down Sisera. But no, Sisera escapes and he goes to hide in this woman's tent. She's very hospitable, she makes sure he's comfortable. And then while he's resting, she drives a tent peg through, not into, through from one side through the other, into the ground. And she kills him. An army commander taken down by a tent-dwelling housewife. This sounds like something that should be part of an episode of some crime thriller show. It's weird. It's, it's not something you would think to do, just chilling in a tent, the Bible is filled with strange stories. So don't ever tell me that the Bible is boring. It goes on to say in verse 22 to 24, and then as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. The wandering assassin. She killed one of the most feared men, and she did it without being in battle. She did it without being a trained soldier, and her name went down in history because of it. Now we have to ask... Does this strange story have value to us? What can we learn from it? Would you believe me if I told you we can learn practical lessons from this? And just disclaimer, let me clarify, I'm not telling you that you can go and kill your enemy with a tent peg and a hammer. (laughs) That is not the lesson, that is not the takeaway from the story. Taking revenge on your enemies is not the lesson of the story. Understand the time they were living in. It was violent and barbaric times. It was a different time. We are living in a time of grace. But it's in the word. There is value to us today. Now, before we get into the practical application, before I, ex- I, I tell you what we can learn from the story, I want to explain a little bit about why Sisera hid in her tent and why Yael did what she did. See, verse 17 tells us that Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazel, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Remember, I told you that random introduction to some random person, has value. There's a purpose for it being there. And here's why. Heba the Kenite, the guy who was related to Moses' father-in-law, is Yael's husband. He had set up camp in a place near to where the battle took place. So unknowingly, that was a strategic location. Heba had also made a deal with the king of Canaan, They were allies. But being related to Moses' father in law is also a key piece of information because that means that he knew about the God of Israel. He knows what happened in Egypt and how God delivered the Israelites from from Egypt. He knew the stories, he had heard how powerful God was, and his people, the Kenites, were friends of the Israelites. But it also tells us that he separated himself from his people. He withdrew to this new location and he made a deal with the king of Canaan. Now all of this might seem random at first when we're reading it. But as we, we look at the whole story, we can see that all of us led up to setting up the perfect moment in which Sisera could be taken down and God would deliver his people. See, the location of their camp was close enough that Sisera could escape there on foot. When Yael saw him coming and called, her into, he called him into her tent, he went in with no questions asked because he knew her. He knew her husband. He knew that they were allies. So because of the peace between Heba and the king of Jabin, Sisera had a sense of security. She was not a threat to him. So he goes in, he feels safe. Yael, being a good host, covers him with a blanket. She makes him feel comfortable. He escaped battle. He's tired. He's scared. And she enforces this sense of security by making him feel protected and providing for him. Then he asks for water and she gives him milk. Now, this is also a bit strange, but we can see this in two ways. First of all, she gave him something better, in the sense she gave him more than expected. Once again, showing hospitality and enforcing this idea that he is safe with her. She will take care of him. The second reason we can see why she gave him milk is because it made him sleepy. The milk made him fall asleep faster than if she had given him water. So he drinks his jug of milk, she covers him, he's all tucked in, he's feeling safe, he's tired, And then he gives her this instruction because he feels safe enough to give this instruction. If anyone asks, I'm not here. See, he's he's saying that because he's thinking, this woman will keep me safe. She will make sure that no one knows I'm here while I regain my strength. And then he drifts off to sleep, not worrying about his life, completely letting his guard down because he feels safe and taken care of. He's with an ally. She's taken care of him. She's gone above and beyond for him. She's offered him a place to stay, to hide. Clearly, there's no need to worry. So why did Yael do all of this, show him such hospitality, and then kill him? If her husband was an ally, why did she kill Sisera? Again, remember, The Kenites knew about the God of Israel. Yael was a Kenite. Her people were friends with the Israelites. So although her husband had separated them from from the Kenites, she still knew the truth. She still knew the God of Israel. And she was also aware of the oppression and the suffering that Israel was enduring under King Jabin. She saw the injustice. Now, we don't know if she meant to kill him from the start. We don't know when she called him to come into her tent, if she intended to kill him, or if she was just going to keep him there, keep him occupied, keep him distracted, while Barack and his men had time to come looking for him, and then she could hand them over and have them deal with him. But when we look at all this information that we are given, what we see is that she was in the right place at the right time, and she was given the opportunity to make a difference. So whether she intended to or not, the moment came when Sisera fell asleep, she's looking at him and she realizes, I can do something about this. With Sisera fast asleep, she decides to take action. She looks around her and she sees what she has, she sees the tent pegs and the hammer. Now, also keep in mind, when we think tent peg, we might be thinking of what we know today, those little thin metal things that, I mean, they're a joke, let's be honest. Compared to what tent pegs were in those days, we're talking about like a big wooden stake or something made of iron. This thing was big enough to not just go into his head, but threw his head into the ground. These were pegs that held up these tents that they lived in. So these were proper tent pegs, nice, big, sturdy, strong, sharp. So she looks around her, she sees the tent pegs and the hammer. She doesn't have any weapons, but she sees her tools. So she picks up the tent peg, she picks up her hammer, and she quietly moves over to Sisera to make sure she doesn't wake him up while he's sleeping. She places the tent peg on his temple. And then she drives it through. Now also keep in mind, don't think of a a small, weak little lady. She comes from a nomadic tribe. They are used to setting up tents and setting down tents, moving camp. So she had driven tent pegs into the ground more times than she can count. She was used to working that hammer and that tent peg. She didn't miss. She had force. She knew what she was doing. So she drives this tent peg through his head. And Cicero, who had been lulled into a false sense of security, sleeping peacefully, peacefully, would never wake up again. And then she goes outside and waits. So she's just killed him. And then she goes outside and waits. And then she sees Barak coming in the distance and she says, come. I know who you're looking for. Let me show you. Come into my tent. And there's Sisera dead with a tent peg in his head. So what can we possibly learn from this story? What practical applications could there be for us today from this wandering assassin? First lesson, first practical application, see the opportunity and take it. See the opportunity and take it. Like I said, I'm not talking about the opportunity to take revenge on your enemies, no, 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 no. See, Yael was aware of what was happening around her. She knew about the battle and she knew that in order for the Israelites to be free, Sisera had to die. Now she was not an Israelite woman, yet she played a key role in the deliverance of the Israelites. She found herself in a position of opportunity. This man is unsuspecting. He's tired. He's let me make him feel safe. I have him occupied here in my tent. Now again, we don't know if she intended to kill him from the start. But we cannot deny that she was given an opportunity. She could not deny the opportunity that was before her. She realized it's now or never. So she took action. She saw the opportunity and she took it. She didn't waste time. She didn't sit there writing a pros and cons list. She didn't overthink it. She took action. What about you? What opportunities is God placing before you, wanting you to take them and step into action, but instead you freeze? You need to pray more. You need to wait on God for a sign or confirmation. You're unsure. But if God sets up the perfect opportunity for you to take action, will you recognize it? Yael did. did. This is a dark and twisted example, but we cannot deny how God worked things out for the good of his people in that moment. I also want to point out that she recognized that it was the right thing to do, even though it would have been a risk to her and her family. Her husband had a deal with the king of Canaan, they were allies. So essentially, by killing Sisera, she was putting her husband and her family at risk by breaking the agreement. But doing the right thing outweighed the risk. So let's learn from Yael and be people of action. Let's do what is right. Let's see the opportunities before us and take them. The second application, the second lesson, use the tools you have. She wasn't a warrior, and unlike trained assassins, she did not have an arsenal of weapons to choose from. She was a tent dweller, a nomad. All she had was her working tools, a hammer and tent pegs. So not only did she see the opportunity and take it, but she didn't allow her lack of resources to stop her. She didn't think, you know what, I'm not properly equipped for this. Because as we saw, she was more than properly equipped. It might not have been the conventional method of assassination, but it worked. She got the job done. So what tools do you have? What skills do you have? How many times have we heard God to tell us to do something, and we immediately disqualify ourselves? Because we think we are not equipped, we're not skilled enough. We don't have the necessary resources. We don't have the skill set needed to accomplish the task. So instead of trusting God with what we do have, instead of trusting what He can do and use that we already have, we just sit back and wait until we're ready. We wait until we have what is necessary. Just think about your life. What do you have? What skill set do you have? What resources do you have? What you have is enough. You already have what you need. Because when you take what you have and you trust God with it, He can do the impossible. Imagine if that little boy kept quiet with his fish and bread. It's all he had. And look what God did. Use the tools you have. You are already equipped. Imagine if Yael had disqualified herself. All I have is this tent peg and hammer. I can't do this. But she was qualified, she was equipped, she was skilled. Maybe not as a warrior, but her skills as a tent dweller enabled her to drive that tent peg through his head into the ground. That sounds qualified enough to me. So what do you have? What tools and what skills do you possess? Whatever it is, stop making excuses and use it. Use it. Don't disqualify yourself because what you have looks different to what you think God wants. Or it's different to what other people have. That's another trap we fall into. I don't have what that person has. They're better equipped to do it. But if God is calling you to do something, he will equip you, he will qualify you, he will enable you. Be faithful with what you have. He'll take care of the rest. And then our third lesson. You can either partner with God or watch as others get the glory. What we need to understand is this. God's will will be done. His will will be done. And he can and will use the unexpected to do it. God's will will be done. So you have a choice. You can either partner with what God is doing. Or you can just watch from the sidelines as others do great things for the Lord because you were too scared to jump into action. Deborah called up Barak and told him to go and fight, and the Lord will deliver Sisera into his hand. And how did he respond? Only if you come with me. He didn't say yes, he said maybe. He tried to negotiate. I'll do it if you come with me. He received a message from God through Deborah, and instead of just accepting that, he doubts it. And because of that, Deborah tells him that he will not get the glory, and instead, Cicero will be handed over to a woman. Barak, instead of jumping into action, instead of partnering with God immediately, he allowed fear and doubt to influence him. And as a result, he didn't get the glory. In chapter five, we read a song that the Israelites sang. It's a song telling their story and recounting their victory over the Canaanites. It's a song where they're giving honor to the Lord and those who helped bring victory. You want to know what the song says about Barak? Chapter five, verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. It tells us that he he led the people. You want to know what it says about Yael, who's not even an Israelite? Verse 24 to 27. Blessed among women is Yael, the wife of Heba the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water. She gave milk. She brought cream. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched Her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera, she pierced his head, she split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Most blessed among women is Yael. Now after this victory, the Israelites experienced peace for 40 years. And during this time, I'm sure they would look back on this victory. Perhaps they would recall and sing this song and be reminded of the events that took place. And the story of Yael and Sisera would be told from generation to generation to generation. And here we are today talking about it. Although Barak had an important role to play, he does not go down as the hero who took down Sisera that glory goes to Yael. Each of us have been called by God to do something. You have a calling on your life. There is something special that God wants to use you for. But don't think that if we don't do it, he won't use someone else instead. God has this calling for you, for you to go and do. But it's your choice whether you accept it and go do it. And if you don't, his will will still be done. He will use someone else. Maybe someone unexpected. Maybe someone less qualified. But they will get the glory and you will miss out having been part of doing what God wants to do. So... Will you be part of the action? When God says go, will you say yes or will you be watching someone else do what is necessary knowing that that should have been you? Imagine how Barak felt. God had told him, Sisera will be delivered into your hand. He doubted and someone else took Sisera down. So we have to be ready to step into action because if we are not Someone else will. And the glory that was intended for you will be given to someone else because they were ready when you were not. Now this strange story, as weird and violent as it is, it is a reminder to us to keep focused on God, to keep our eyes on him, to remain faithful and obedient to him. It is a reminder that even in the darkest moments, God is at work. It is a reminder that we need to seize the opportunities given to us to use what we have and to trust God when he calls us. It is a reminder to partner with him so that we do not miss out on his glory. So as you go out, as you enter a new week, be alert. See your opportunities and take them. Do not disqualify yourself. When you already have what you need, use the tools you have and then make the choice to partner with God. Don't just watch others stepping into their calling. Go out and step into yours. Be people of action. See the opportunity. Take it. Use your tools. Partner with God and allow him to do what he does. Let's be people of action. Let's be the unexpected in God's story. Let's do what he has called us to do. Don't disqualify yourself. If he said it, he will do it. Trust him. Amen? So I hope you can see how as strange as as these stories can be, God can still speak to us through them. Scripture can be weird, but it is also wonderful. And let's be encouraged by that. So let's stand as we close in prayer. And be ready to go out this week and do what God has called you to do. To make the difference that God has enabled you to make. You don't need a platform. You don't need a microphone. You don't need position. You are where you need to be. So make a difference where you are. So Father, we thank you that you have already given us what we need that you have already qualified us. We may not feel qualified according to our own standards or to the standards around us, but Lord, in your hands, we are ready to go. We have what we need. We have you with us, and we know that you can work through us. Father, I pray that we'll be people of action, that when you say go, we will say yes. That when you say go, we won't sit here trying to negotiate only if so-and-so is with me or if this happens. No, we will go. We will trust you. Father, I pray that we will look around us and see what is in our hand and trust that you can work with what we have. That you are the God of the impossible. So even when things might not make sense to us, we can trust that with you, we can make a difference. Father, give us the courage to do what is right, even if there is a risk for us but that we will not be afraid to take action and do the right thing because that is what you're calling us to do, Lord. May we have courage. May we have strength. May we have the boldness to step up. May we recognize the opportunities around us so that we won't let them slip away, but see, you want to do something now, and so I will do it. May we make that decision, Lord, to partner with you in what you are doing so that we do not miss what you have intended for us, so that we do not sit back and watch as someone else does what we know should have been us, that we were the ones who were called to do that thing. But Father, we also thank you that your will will be done, that even when we might fail you, Lord, your will will be done your work will still be done. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these strange stories. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from them. We thank you that scripture is still speaking life into our lives. And Father, I pray that as we spend time in scripture, that you will speak to us. That you'll open our eyes to see these lessons. And that we will be encouraged, that we will be strengthened, that we will be motivated to go out and do what you have called us to do, to be the men and women that you have made us to be, so that we can go and make a difference in the world around us, so that we can go and be a light in the darkness, so that we can take hold of the ground that is under our feet, our areas of influence, Lord. May we be your instruments in a fallen world. So we thank you, Lord, that you use the broken, that you use the unexpected, that you use us as we are, if we are willing to surrender and be part of the process. So Father, I pray now that you will take us out into this week, that your protection will be upon us, that your guidance will be before us, Lord, that you will be before us so that we can follow your lead. We can follow your instruction. We can do what is necessary and we can go out there and be men and women of God sharing your love to the world around us. And I pray, Father, that you will help us break the habits, that we will not fall into the cycle as the Israelites did But that when we are living in your peace, in that freedom, we will fight the temptation to sin. So now, Lord, may your blessing be upon us. May you go out before us and with us. And enable us to do what you have called us to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next Sunday. Amen.